We are starting Ephesians chapter 6 today, and we're talking about the role of child and parent and employer and employee, just simple terms I'm going to use for the sake of not complicating things. Uh, so, um, God has a serious calling, like a very serious calling um, that I think often gets overlooked by most believers, a very serious calling on, on the Christian employee on the Christian child. Um, we often don't consider bringing God into those roles, you know, as for those of you that are children still living in the household of your parents or, you know, under 18 and you're called to listen and obey. You don't really take that calling as seriously as you should. Most children don't. Um, and I think a lot of employees don't consider how like, um, serious God takes their workplace and their their efforts in their in their work environment. So let's go to Ephesians chapter six. I hope that today you'll have a a clearer view of, of what it looks like to honor God with my job, with my my career, with whatever amount of um, responsibility he's given me in the workplace. I I really pray that you'll see not just what it looks like, but how seriously God takes this whole thing. And as children, for those of you that are watching and you're under 18 and still living in your parents' houses and, um, or your guardian's house and you're not 18, you're not a legal adult and you don't have the responsibilities of an adult yet and you're still called to respect and listen to your parents, I really hope that you'll understand the calling on a child, the calling on someone who still is under their, their parents' authority in their house. Now, let's go to Ephesians 6. Okay, verse 1. And if you're like, I'm not a child, well, you might have children when you grow up, okay? You might have children, get married, and you might end up raising children. And so to know the purpose um, and the calling God has for your children will give you more precise direction as a parent and will better equip you to train up and, and, and equip and empower your children to effectively do what God's called them to do, okay? So... You might not be a child here and you're going, I'm out of my parents' house. I'm done with that. I don't got to respect parent. You're going to have kids probably if you get married and you're trying to have kids and you want to have a family and you're going to have to know, wow, what does God expect of my kids and how does that influence how, how I direct and train and teach and, and treat them as the parent, whether I'm a dad or I'm a mom. So Ephesians 6.1, it says, children, obey your parents. And that word obey in the Greek, it really does mean obey. It really does mean listen and submit to. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Okay, so what we have to establish is Paul's not sharing anything new. If you go all the way back to chapter 5, he started this, this, this new line of thought and he says, imitate God as beloved children and walk in the love of God that is demonstrated by Jesus' is, is, is sacrifice, by his self-sacrificial, self-giving love. Okay, so imitate God by walking in that love. And that's not a call for just some believers in some environments. That's a call on every believer. Whatever role you have, whatever degree of influence and... and um, responsibility you have as Christians, we are all called to walk in the love of God and model our lives after Jesus, okay? To imitate Christ. And what Paul's going to do now as he goes through chapter 5 and chapter 6 is he's going to address specific roles in the church 
and what their specific role will look like when they're imitating God and walking in self-sacrificial love, okay? So he's going to address wives and husbands. He's going to address children and parents. He's going to address employers and employees, okay? All these different roles within the church, and I love that he brings it all together to say, regardless of your role in the family, in the workplace, your title, okay, your, your worldly labels, whatever your positions are, we're all called, verse 21 of chapter 5, to submit to one another out of reverence, out of respect, out of love. We revere our brothers and sisters to the degree that I'm submitting my life on the altar to the Lord for their benefit, for their ultimate good, to make their life better. I'm submitting to them. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm su- submitting my life over, not, not for me, not for my self-gain and, um, you know, own preservation and, and agenda, but for the good of others. So when we talk about submission, we already talked about this in the last... Uh, teaching on Ephesians, submission is not just for the, the wife in the marriage, it's not just for the husband, it's, it's for children, it's for employers, it's for employees. Every single believer, I really want you to catch this, because this is going to really help us correctly interpret the following verses. We are all called to imitate God, model our lives after the love of Jesus, and walk in that self-sacrificial submission to one another. It doesn't even say to God. Now it is to God, but but the point here is it's actually directed towards each other. It's a humble laying down of my life, even at my own expense, for your benefit. And it is for Christ, for his glory, but it is directed towards you. In other words, God is honored by the way that we treat one another. Or he's dishonored by the way that we treat one another, but he's honored by submission. And godly, humble, self-sacrificial love where I give my life over um, for your gain, for your profit, okay? So, and then verse 25, he talks about the marriage, the roles within the marriage and wives and husbands and what that looks like and what mutual submission looks like. And again, we already talked about how submission is not just for the wife. Every Christian is called to a degree and a way of submitting Okay, every single person on the planet who calls themselves a believer is going to submit in a different way to a different degree, but everyone is submitting. And I'm not just talking about to God, I'm talking about to each other. Talking about to each other, okay? So now we get to chapter 6. He's talked about wives, he's talked about husbands, he's talked about the church in general. And again, the overall idea is just imitate God. Just, just look at him. Just follow in the footsteps of Jesus, his sacrifice and his love and, and deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after him into, into the love that benefits people, into laying down your life for the good of another. And now he's going to address children and parents. Okay? So he's still working with the family model. Still working with the family model. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents. In the Lord, this is right. This is good. You might say this is God's will for your life. If you go all the way back to Ephesians chapter 4 or 5, Paul's already talked about understand what the will of the Lord is. Whatever your role in the family, whatever your role in the workplace, in your neighborhood, in your society and culture, 
Um, we should understand what God's will is for us. And children, obey your parents. This is right. This is his will. And then he's going to quote here Exodus chapter 20. And he's going to say, Honor your father and mother. Now, this is to reinforce the command to the children. This is not the direct, necessarily, command. And I'll explain in a minute, because I'm just going to confuse people. Verse 2, quoting Exodus chapter 20. He says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And that's in parentheses. So that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So Paul is quoting Exodus 20 to reinforce the command he's given to the, the children in Ephesus who follow Jesus. Which tells us their children are capable of understanding the gospel and believing and, and walking in the truth of God. Um, uh, what age that is, I think it depends on each, children's, each child's development and the, the, the rate of maturity and the access to information they have and, and how much knowledge and information they've internalized and how much they're capable of understanding that, that's going to vary with each child. The point is, there is a point that every child is going to reach at which they're accountable, at which they're actually able to reason through these things and understand and believe the gospel. And one of the things, here's, listen, if you live in your parents' house, and you're still under their roof as a child, under the age of 18, and you, you respect their rules and you're under their authority, your main purpose as of right now, with your age and with your role in, in the church, is to obey and listen to your parents and to respect their authority. Now, the culture we live in is pushing back against that so much. So much. Now, I'm not saying you mindlessly believe everything your parents say and listen to everything they say without considering the, uh, the implications or whether or not it honors God. Your main uh, loyalty lies with God. Your main allegiance is with God. Okay, so, so your first priority is to honor God. And what honors Him is to do um, what your parents ask you to as long as it aligns with His Word and His character. So I think as far as a parent goes is up to the point, okay, that they're asking you to do something that dishonors God. That's where we draw the line and go, well, I listen to you, mom and dad. I respect your authority and I, I obey you, okay? But once you ask me to do something that violates the word of God and, the, and who God is, that's where I draw the line and I don't go any farther than that. Because my main allegiance lies with God. He's my ultimate authority. So obey your parents in the Lord is a key phrase. Is, is, it is to his glory. It is, it is to honor the Lord. It is to align with his word and his character and his, his revealed nature and his will for my life. And if my parents are asking me to do something or telling me, to, commanding me to do something that violates the word of God, and that contradicts who he is, I have to respectfully say, Mom and Dad, the scriptures teach something else, and you're telling me to dishonor God. And you let them take that up with the Lord, but your main allegiance lies with him. And how that works out in the household, that's going to vary with each family. The point is, sometimes children do need to take a stand um, on the word of God when their parents are not. 
and respect the authority of God and not violate his word and not dishonor him in the name of just making my parents happy. It's not about the happiness or the, the temporary just keeping my parents off my back. It's actually about honoring God in my relationship with my parents. And God can't be honored in that relationship if you're doing something that dishonors his name, that is disobedient to his commands, okay? So there's a, whatever the age is for each child and, and whatever rate of maturity they're experiencing, every child eventually is going to reach a point in their life where they're accountable and they actually are able to listen to and obey their parents. And there's another point at which they reach where they can begin to discern through what their parents ask of them. My son's five and uh, there's a lot of things he should not question. There's a lot of things he should not push back on. He's in the stage of, but why, why, why? And it's like, there, you need to learn. You don't need to know why when I tell you to do something. You need to trust that what I'm saying is for your benefit and it's good and it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's helpful. You don't need to ask why every time. And he's learning to stop asking why as much. And lately, okay, lately, there are some things where I'll, I'll just, I don't know, I'll be, what's a good word? I won't be a good godly demonstration of Jesus in my words or in my actions. And, and, and my son will say, hey, dad, um, that doesn't make God happy. Or I'll ask him to do something as like a joke and we're just playing around. And he goes, but God doesn't want us to lie. And I have to take a step back and I have to humbly receive the correction of God through my five-year-old. And if you're a, a good, loving parent, mm, those moments suck, but you'll humble yourself to receive the correction and admonishment of your child. And look, your kid could live like 99% ungodly. And that one time he's like, hey, your Bible says you shouldn't do this, mom. And you're like, I really hate that God is using you to correct me right now because you are not someone who is worthy to correct me with the life you live. And you're still called to listen to the truth that comes out of a mouth that doesn't even um, mostly live it out. You know, Jesus tells uh, the Jewish people to, to listen to the, the religious teachers and to do what they say, but not to do what they do. In other words, uh, Jesus is saying, look, the religious teachers... They don't do what they're telling you to do. So don't model your life after theirs. Model your life after what they're saying, which, accord, which aligns with the truth of the scriptures. And so uh, another rabbit trail I shouldn't have gone down, but the point is God can even use children to correct the parent. Uh, it's, it's, it's rough. I get that. I get that's freaking rough. No one wants to be corrected by their three-year-old who's standing on the word of God from that one VeggieTale episode they watched. And they're like, King Nebuchadnezzar lied. And mom, you're not, you're being like King Nebuchadnezzar right now. You're lying. God doesn't like that. And you're like, mm, shouldn't have shown you that episode. <laughs> I don't like that. Maybe no more VeggieTales because I'd rather not be corrected by you. We're called to actually humbly uh, consider that correction and go, wow, I don't think I'm aligning with God's word right now. But children, listen to me. Listen to me. It is, it is right 
to respect the authority of your parents. And, and I went down that rabbit trail just to say like culture pushes back so much. The society we live in is like anti-authority, um, anti-parental authority, pushing back against the mom and dad's authority in the kid's life. And so kids, teenagers, those who are still in their parents' household under their authority, under the age of 18, not an adult yet, you are, you are called. Like you're, there's a strong and serious purpose on your life in this season of your life to respect the authority of your parents. And again, as long as it doesn't violate the character and the word of God, he is, that's where your ultimate allegiance lies. But Paul does quote Exodus chapter 20 here, Exodus 20, and he quotes the original command. We forget that one of the 10 commandments, like alongside not murdering, alongside not lying, alongside not you know, committing adultery and making idols is honor your father and mother. That's a big one to God. If that's in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And he attaches a promise to it. And this is where I want to stop for a second and say, what Paul does is he quotes the passage of Scripture where he's drawing his wisdom for new covenant believers. I'm going to say that again. What Paul does here is he's quoting the Ten Commandments, which apply to New Covenant believers, and he's drawing out the wisdom that applies to a New Covenant believer. So as, as Christians, we know the Ten Commandments still apply. The moral law of God hasn't changed. God doesn't define what's right or wrong morally now that we're in Christ. It's still the same. Ceremonially, ritually, civilly, as like a as Israel being a theocracy, that's changed because of Christ and because of the temple and because of the nature of Israel. But what Paul doesn't do here, and some of you might disagree, I've always heard this passage explained in a way where it's like, hey kids, listen to mom and dad, God will give you a long life. The only problem is the promise, not the command, the promise is based on Israelite as a nation living in the promised land. In other words, two conditions for this promise, besides the command, two conditions are that you're an Israelite living in the promised land. This is the original context of the promise. Now, the command doesn't change because the command to honor father and mother isn't based on race or ethnicity or season in human history. It's not based on where you live. Okay, but the promise... If you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, this is just alongside all the other Ten Commandments. After the Sabbath, the Lord says, hey, kids, honor your father and your mother. You know what's interesting, actually? And I just didn't even realize I did it. Verse 12 doesn't specify children in Exodus chapter 20. Go back to Exodus chapter 20. It doesn't specify children. It doesn't call out the children. This is a generic universal command for all of God's people alongside keeping the Sabbath, alongside not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, alongside, you know, not making carved idols and not sleeping around and not murdering. It doesn't specify a category of people in Israel. It's, a, it's applied to all of Israel. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So, 
when God makes this promise, he's making it to the Israelite people who are going into the promised land. In other words, he says, look, if you honor your father and mother, my chosen nation, I will give you a long life in the land I'm giving you, the promised land. In other words, people are going to push back against I Frankly, I don't care. The point is, we can't take a promise that applies to a specific people group in a specific season of human history in a specific region. If you don't live in the promised land, you can't have this promise that your life will be long in the land because it's based on being in the promised land as an Israelite. So in other words, what Paul does here, what Paul does here is he's quoting Exodus 20. And this is where believers in general just have to learn. And this comes with a lot of studying and, and actually sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning. We have to learn how to recognize what applies to new covenant believers and what actually doesn't? And how do we carry over the right amount from the Old Testament into the New without violating God's intention behind, you know, those original laws or those original commands or promises? So what Paul does here is he, he commands the children, hey, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. And then he's going to quote Exodus 20 to reinforce that and say, look, Exodus 20 says, honor your father and mother. He's going to say, this is the first commandment that has a promise. Um... In the list of the Ten Commandments, this is the first one, uh, the only one to my knowledge, that has an actual promise attached to it. If you honor mom and dad, God will give you a long life in the land that he's giving you. That long life is, is premised upon being in the promised land. So if you're not in the promised land, this, this promise, and if you're not an Israelite in, the, in that season of human history, this promise, I don't believe, okay? Someone might have reason to believe otherwise. I don't believe this promise necessarily applies to New Covenant believers. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have a variation of it for his people now, okay? But Paul doesn't quote anything like that. All he's doing is quoting Exodus 20 to reinforce the idea that you need to obey your parents. That's the direct command. Here's what he's not doing. He's not saying, this promise applies to you. There's no explicit language like that. What he does say is, Listen to your parents. Respect your parents, children. And what's interesting is he takes a, a universal law, like one of the Ten Commandments, which is for all people, and he uses it to address the children specifically. And I already showed you in Exodus 20, I just learned this actually, that that command was not just for children. <laughs> it was for all of God's people. But he's taken that one commandment and, and, he's, and he's applying it to just children here. Now, it doesn't mean it's just for children, but he's really driving it home for the kids, for those who are under the authority of their parents. And he's going, look, God promised in the Ten Commandments this for those who listen to this command. I think to reinforce the seriousness of, uh, of listening to and honoring parents. So, maybe I made my point, maybe I didn't. The point is people are going to disagree. But Paul doesn't explicitly say that the promise is for New Covenant believers. He's just quoting Exodus 20 to reinforce the point that children should listen to parents. So verse 4. Okay, enough about the kids. Kids, you got to understand. Like, I know you have a lot of responsibilities. You got homework. You got rough kids to deal with at school if you go to school. You have, uh, I mean, the people you're dealing with, kids, children, those who are under 18. That's what I mean by children. I'm not going to use the word teenager for now, just to avoid 
the point is, if you're under 18, you got a lot of garbage to deal with. I get it. Like homework and chores and sports and people at school and drama and, and your social image. The main role you have in this season of your life is to honor God by respecting your parents. That's what pleases Him. In other words, if you're in your parents' household and you're not honoring them, we can safely say you're not living out the, the calling on your life as effectively as you could. That doesn't mean you're not doing other things. I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. I serve in the youth ministry. But one of the main things God has for you to do, the main responsibility on your life in this season, under your parents' authority, is that you would respect them, and you would honor them, and you would listen and obey. Not mindlessly, not for selfish motives, not without consideration and discernment, right? But this is the main calling on your life in this season. And you can be doing everything else and seeking the Lord and serving in children's ministry. And I'm, and I'm waking up really early to go and sing in the choir on Sundays and I'm feeding the homeless. But what God really desires of you mainly, not only, but mainly, is that you would respect your parents. You can't neglect that because you're doing other godly things. You can't excuse dishonoring your parents because I'm doing all these other godly things. I don't have time for that and God doesn't really care that much. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal. Like, apparently, Paul could have said anything to the children. He could have said anything. Read your Bible, Old Testament, know Jesus, see the promises. The main responsibility Paul addresses here for the kids under 18, your calling is to obey your parents. Now, this doesn't mean the parents don't have responsibility. We're going to get to verse 4. But children, and I call you children on purpose because you're under 18, whatever, okay? Legally, we don't get in, need to get into all that. But the point is, you are called like by God himself to respect and, and reverence your parents. It doesn't mean you idolize them and anything you say, almighty parents. But you honor them because you honor the Lord. In other words, to dishonor them is to dishonor God. There's no way of getting around it. You can't be, I'm going to say this as nicely as I can. It's going to sound harsh but I don't mean it harshly. I'm using this language to, to really drive it home. You can't be a crappy child and a great Christian. There's no way to get around that. You can't be saying, I'm a fantastic Christian while you're being a crappy kid to your parents. And I say that on purpose because no one else is going to drive this home. Uh, no one else is going to take this seriously. Maybe you've never heard it like this. Don't you, don't you dare. Ah, uh, man, I'm not even going to get into that. I just know kids are nowadays, and I got two of them, but I look out in society, I look at social media, I look at what kids are allowing and how what they get away with and what their parents are allowing, and I go, I don't know. I don't know how we got here. I don't know how we got here as a society, how kids are just like not even disrespectful, abusive to parents like this generation is pretty messed up and i'm going to tell you it's not just on the part of the kids verse 4 says fathers and not just fathers but the point is the father representing the the the, the parents don't provoke your children to anger 
Now watch this. But bring them up, educate them, teach them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now you see the word discipline and you, you think a whacking. Okay? You see the word discipline and you think a beating. Discipline is training. Discipline is intentional growth in a specific direction. Discipline is I am equipping and empowering and teaching you. And in the process, that might include, okay, that might include um, some form of physical discipline, okay? How far you take that, you sit with the Lord on that. The point is, fathers, mothers, for those of you who are parents, there is a tendency and a temptation to teach. Oh, no, let me retract that. For parents, there's a temptation to treat your kids like your friend. I'm saying that again. As, as parents, there is the temptation, and I say that on purpose. There is the temptation to treat your kids, even at a young age, like your friend. And I'll tell you what. They'll have a lot of friends growing up. And you can still be their friend, which means you're available to, to care and help and have fun with them. Parents, listen really, really carefully. You're not mainly to be your kid's friend. And one of the ways you might take friendship too far to an unhealthy degree is to the point where you tease them. And like everything is a joke and everything is fun and to the point that they're not having fun anymore. I think a lot of us as parents, if you've had a kid long enough, you've had a point in your life and your relationship with your kid where you've taken a joke too far or you messed with them a little too long or you like played around with them and wrestled and they said, I'm, I, I, I don't want any anymore. I'm done. I'm done. I'm, this is not fun. You know, and we've taken things too far as parents. The point is parents need to be mindful and respectful of their children's boundaries. And you can take that even too far to the point where you're just tiptoeing around and, oh, you don't want lunch? Okay, that's fine. I don't want to make you mad. I don't want to just, I don't want to, you know, cause some unnecessary rage. So I'm just going to move on and wait. There is a way to do this well. But the point is parents are not, what is not godly for a parent to do is to drive their kids to anger and tease them and joke and, and push things too far and push their buttons. And parents, you know your kids. Like, you know your your children's hot buttons you know what'll piss them off and you know how fast they'll get there okay so as parents not only should i be aware of my kid's heart and his and his threshold and his boundaries and and what he or she considers fun and and laughs at i should act in accordance with that and not go farther than i should instead look at the contrast okay it's like here are your two options Push your children to the point of rage and joke with them too far and, 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 and uh, you know, mess with them a little too long. Or option number two, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So those are your two options. You can be a fun parent that pushes things too far. And of course, there's a balance between the two, right? Or... You can understand that you have a friendship with your kid. That's great. But that's not the primary role you have in their life is friend. You should train them. 
you understand that every parent is training their kids in a certain direction. Now you can say, no, nah, I'm neutral, fam. I ain't pushing them toward God. I ain't pushing them away. I ain't educating them on any political issue, whatever, man. You have no idea what your lifestyle, you might not be forcing them and indoctrinating them and teaching them with your mouth or your lips, but your life, the way you treat your wife or your husband, the way you treat your coworkers, the way you answer the phone, the way you handle your responsibilities, your life is training them up to believe certain things and to act certain ways. So training and discipline and instruction doesn't just come from the mouth. Honestly, it actually comes more from the life because you can be a parent that tells your kids to do stuff, right? And then your life says something else. They're going to imitate your life and disregard your words. That's what they're going to do. Kids are smart. They're friggin' intelligent. And they know that your lifestyle, subconsciously, whether they're aware of it or not, they will model themselves after your life. If the two are at odds, if what you say is different than how you live, they're going to conform to the way you live and what you model each day, not what you say. So we're called to lead our kids by example. And you can do all you want to disconnect and be neutral on every political issue and every religious issue there is. You are training your kids in a specific direction with your life. All Paul is saying is since every kid is being trained up in a direction, and that's unavoidable, we should be intentional about the direction we're leading them. We should be careful and considerate and also thoughtful about where we're leading our children, how we're leading them, and what we're training them to believe with our lives. So discipline is not this, you know, spanking and pinching and, you know, timeouts. Discipline can include that. And I think there are some points throughout a kid's lifestyle, uh, throughout a kid's life where those things should, should happen at some point, whatever. Okay, I don't care if you disagree. The point is discipline mainly is intentional training. And part of that is if they do something wrong uh, over and over, repeatedly, repeatedly, after enough times and days and weeks and months, and they don't listen, there comes a point where maybe a little bit of uh, physical discipline will direct them in, the, in a helpful direction, move them in a direction that most benefits them. Now, everyone's going to disagree and have their own parenting method. Frankly, I don't care because I'm getting my parenting method from the scriptures. But when you see discipline, the point is parents... You're called to intentionally train and instruct and teach your children in the Lord. In other words, parents, like if you're not intentionally instructing your kids in the ways of God, culture is going to take over and instruct them in the ways of the devil. Someone is going to instruct and indoctrinate your kids if it's not you. That's the point. So you can be this happy, go-lucky, neutral parent all you want. Everyone is going to be trained up by someone or something. Someone is going to indoctrinate your kids. Someone is going to tell your kid how to live. Someone is going to teach your kid what to say in certain situations. All I'm saying, okay, is as parents, your main role as a parent is not to be their friend. It's not to have fun with them. Those things happen. That's great. 
your main role is to mindfully each day wake up, okay? And say, what can I do and say and teach to help my children know the Lord and love him better? How do I teach them the ways of God? Through story time, through playing, through going outside, through the way you treat your spouse, through the way you handle responsibilities and the dishes and what you allow them to watch, what you allow them to listen to, how, <clears throat> how thoughtful you are about where they're going and who they're hanging out with. Your main role, you got to understand this, you're not accidentally in your kid's life. God put you there on purpose for a specific calling. Like he put you there on purpose. And your role, like your main purpose in their life is to tell them about how good God is and what he's done and train them up to know his ways and to be familiar with these stories and not just to allow the stories to you know, create some, uh, imaginative fun scenario for them in their minds but to use the stories as a way to drive truth into their hearts you and i as parents in this generation have an extremely difficult responsibility on our on our heads and that is to train our kids to love the lord in a world and in a generation that is violently opposed to god that's difficult so buckle up Buckle up, put on the armor, freaking go to work and stop messing around. This is not easy and it's not a game because again, if you're not intentionally, and I say that word on purpose over and over, if you're not intentionally training your children to know and love the Lord and modeling them for modeling for them, Jesus, someone else is going to train them up. Someone else is going to indoctrinate them. Someone else is going gonna, is gonna to teach them things and, and ideas that you have no say in. And if you're not actively pushing back against the culture and safeguarding them from the darkness, they're going to fall into it. They're going to fall into it. And I know parents who just want to exist in their parents' lives won't like this. Parents who just want to passively sit back on the couch and play video games and watch Netflix as their kids' lives go by. Like, this isn't for them. That's fine. This isn't for everyone. Not everyone will rise to, the, rise to the standard of a godly parent. That's just the truth of the matter. Not everyone wants it. So, but I'm trying to help you want it because your kid's future is at stake. There's so much indoctrination going on. It's, it's, you accidentally stumble into darkness nowadays. You don't have to want it or ask for it. Like, without a parent's intentional direction and protection, kids will just wander into darkness. And you wonder how they get so far into darkness now in this generation. You wonder how we've gotten so uh, wicked and, and, and evil and, and why we've allowed the things we do. And I'm telling you, it's not just on the part of the kids. You need to make it easy for your kids to listen and obey. They're not going to obey and listen... Uh, to a dictator they're not gonna they're not gonna listen to you and your life model something else they will see the hypocrisy okay they'll come right they'll see right through your hypocrisy they'll see right through your fake listen let's go to church today and as soon as you leave like you're yelling at your wife and as soon as you leave you're grumpy and disrespectful and a jerk and you're nothing like you are at church they'll see right through it 
So parents, we need to raise the bar a bit, okay? And actually be holy as Christ is, and then turn around and train our children up in that same holiness and faith. It's not train your children up and that excuses your lack of holiness. It's you pursue Jesus and bring your children with you. Train them up in the discipline of the Lord. Now, we only have about 45 minutes left. And I've hammered that point enough. I hope some of you parents will wake up and rise to the occasion and raise the bar a bit and realize you can passively sit back and watch their lives go by and they'll end up not at all like what you'd hope because you didn't have any intentional training behind them. You, you weren't involved and actively anticipating what they'd have to face and the people they'd encounter and the situations they'd, they'd go through. You weren't anticipating that. You just sat back and, oh, the Lord will train them up, right? No, God has put you in their life to work through you to train them up. So you... Mm, I'm telling you, we're getting to the point where if you're not teaching your kids social media is, we're getting to the point where if you sit back, that's fine. Someone else will take over and raise your kids for you. The government will, the school system will, their friends will, their friends' parents will, who are living in sin. You gotta wake up and see how important this is. This is serious. Okay, now we get to, for the sake of time, I'm not gonna do an exhaustive teaching on what does the Bible teach about slavery and is, is the Roman society form of slavery different than the Hebraic? form of slavery in the Old Testament. I'm not getting into that. So for those of you that are like, get into the deep stuff. That's not for today. Okay. The point is, I'm just going to go through verse five through 10 and or nine and use the language that Paul is using. He uses the language of bond, servant, and master. Okay. I know some of you who are not Christian are going to hate the language. That's fine. Culturally different terms you can disagree with. I'm going to replace bond servant with employee and master with employer for the sake of explanation. So I don't have to continue to repeat myself and go into a deep exhaustive teaching on slavery in the Bible. And what does that mean? So when I read bond servant, I'm going to say employee. When I read master, I'm going to read employer because that's the contractual form of servitude in Roman society in this age, at least as regards to what Paul is speaking to. He, now, Paul's going to shift, and again, he's talked to husbands, he's talked to wives, he's talked to parents, he's talked to kids, he's talked to the church at large. Now he's going to address those who actually are in the workplace, part of the labor force, and those who are in authority over them. Okay, it's a very simple way of understanding this passage. I don't know why we have to attach all the cultural baggage that comes with these terms that have grown in definition and, and developed certain meanings over the over the years. <clears throat> okay, the point is, verse 5 says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Okay? So the employees he's talking to, those who are in contract servitude, he's calling them. And for those of you that have a job and you work under a supervisor, a CEO, a manager, a shift manager, whoever is over you in authority at your workplace, you're called to obey them. 
with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So imagine, just for a minute, I know some of you hate your job. You wish you could just not have to work and not have to show up to work any, anymore. You just want to quit and walk away. I get that. Imagine Jesus himself, the sovereign king of the universe, steps into your workplace, shows up visibly and materially to you, and then he tells you to do what your manager usually tells you to do. All the responsibilities that your supervisor usually has for you and all the things you're called to do in your workplace, now it's Jesus actually commissioning you to do that. And he's looking over your shoulder, examining your work. Okay? That's the way you would respond to Jesus' instructions in your workplace. The kind of reverence you'd show him. The kind of respect, the kind of diligence in your work, the kind of integrity that you would show. Paul is saying, take that and then apply that to your current work supervisor. Those who are in authority over you in the workplace. And then work for them the way you would work for Jesus. The way you would serve Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Okay? Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. But as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, Paul equates two ideas here. He says the will of God is your respectful submission and obedience to those in authority over you in the workplace. Those who are you in, you're in contract to, those who pay you, those who are giving you your work responsibilities. You're called to do God's will, which is to serve them. Not only when they're watching. Not only when certain people are around. I'm going to do a good job because when Nancy comes around, she really pisses me off. But actually, when no one's looking, your diligence, your work ethic remains the same. Regardless of who's watching. And this is for some of you really hard. Because you only put in the effort when certain people are looking over your shoulders when you know there's going to be like a monthly, you know, uh, examination of your work and they're going to hold you accountable, you only do a good job when someone's going to come and look at your, your work. And the point is that shows a lack of respect when you do that. Like, I really want you to think through this. When you only do a good job when certain people are watching and then when they turn around, your work is sloppy and you don't care and you mess around and you ignore certain responsibilities, you talk bad about them behind their back, That's, that shows your lack of honor for someone made in God's image. That shows your lack of respect and reverence for someone made in God's image. You don't care, frankly, about their authority. You don't care about the responsibilities at hand. All you care about is getting them off your back. All you care about is pleasing them when they're around and then they turn around and you're like, I don't care. I don't really care about how, how hard I work or how good my work ethic is, right? I only do good when they're around and they're really examining what I'm doing. That shows not just a lack of respect for your, the people God has put an authority over you. That shows a lack of respect for God himself. Because here's what you're saying. God is not worthy of my best every time. God is not worthy of my best in my responsibilities every moment. In fact, 
I don't even care about God's opinion. All I care about is my boss leaving me alone so I can, you know, mess around at work and get through the hours and get home already and get paid for it. When you bring God into the workplace, you see your responsibilities in a new light. Now, God's holding me accountable even if no one sees me. Now, my work is unto him and my work ethic is actually being tested by him and he, he cares about it. So now I don't really care if anyone's watching because God is watching and he's with me as I'm doing this. And to, show, and to do less than my best is to say God's worthy of less than my best, right? So don't only do a good job at work or with your responsibilities when certain people are watching. We're supposed to do the will of God from the heart, where, where my heart is in what I'm doing, where my heart is concerned with doing my best because God is watching and he's worthy. And again, if you're going to say God is not worthy of my absolute best in the workplace, that's a whole different sermon in and of itself. That just shows a very low view of God and a low level of thankfulness for what he's done for you. But the point is, people pleasers, like a real kind of people pleaser that the Bible speaks against, that kind of people pleaser only cares about um, the approval of people and doesn't at all care about the opinion of God. Like a true people pleaser does not care about God's opinion. They're obsessed with people's opinions. And they're obsessed with people watching and approval and, and the high fives and the applause. And they don't care about God's opinion. And God, through Paul, is really wanting you to take your work responsibilities a bit more seriously. And sure, maybe no one's watching. Sure, no one's going to find out. Sure, you can get by the next few months without ever doing what your boss said to do. and You can do it last minute. <clears throat> but then again, they're not going to be there to evaluate your works at the end of your life. So frankly, like I, I, I do consider their opinion when I'm doing my, my work, but their opinion isn't ultimate. God's word is. In verse 7, if you're an employee and you work under someone, render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. In other words, when you clean those toilets, when you mop those floors, when you file that paperwork, when you send that email, when you do that administrative work that you hate with a passion, as a believer, you should take that and offer that work as an offering to God and say, here's my best. Here's, here's what you are worthy of, God. I'm going to do my best in all these areas of life and not mess around because I'm doing it in response to what you've done for me. Verse 8 says, as an employee, right, as a bond servant, know this, okay? As I'm serving, as I'm loving, as I'm respecting those in authority over me. And again, there's going to be pushback because people are anti-authority. I don't, frankly, I don't care. Know this, whatever good anyone does, he will receive this back from the Lord. This sounds a lot like Matthew chapter six, when Paul, or when Jesus says, 
hey, when you pray, don't pray like the, the religious leaders. Hey, when you give, don't give like the hypocrites. When you fast, don't fast like the hypocrites. They only care about what man can do for them. They're obsessed with temporary rewards that man can give. But when you work, when you do your best, don't really care about what people can give you. Know this, God's going to reward your faithfulness. God's going to reward your, your obedience and your submission and your diligence. He's going to honor that integrity in a way that, frankly, people could not because they can't give what God can. God will honor all the good that is done in His name, and that includes the workplace. I can't say I'm a faithful Christian and then disconnect from my Christianity at my workplace because then you're compartmentalizing Christianity and you're saying Jesus only touches certain areas of my life. But Christianity is, no, God and His Word actually govern every single aspect of my life. Sexuality, my workplace, relationships, um, the way I deal with coworkers, the way I think about myself, the way I handle my finances. God's Word touches and governs and even determines for me what I'm supposed to do in every area of life. Training my children, loving my wife, all of that. And know this, that as a faithful employee, you will receive back from the Lord, the good that you've done. Whether you're a bond servant or you're free, okay? Whether you're in contract or not, it doesn't matter. Your servitude, your labor, your work ethic is something apparently that God is going to hold you accountable for. And sure, it's like, well, I still get to heaven, right? Yeah, your work ethic doesn't affect your salvation. That's not the point. But I shouldn't only take things seriously when they affect my salvation. Like God's still going to honor or be dishonored by my work ethic. So apparently I should care about it, even if it's not an issue of getting to heaven or not, because God is concerned with it and he'll, he's going to reward the faithful uh, laborers who have done their best in their workplace. And whatever those rewards are, I can't wait. Can't wait to see what they are. You might get your own dragon or something. I don't know. Verse nine says, masters do the same to them. Look, employers, here's what you should do. And here's, where you, this is why the language gets so confusing, but here's how we know our idea of slavery is not at all. What's at work here and at play? Look at what he addresses or tells masters, okay? For those who actually are, are over the, the bond servants that are in contract to them, this is what he tells masters. Do the same to them. Do what? Render good service to them? Treat them as you would Christ with a sincere heart? So this is not just for those in contract, under an employer, under a master. This is for masters too. Stop your threatening. So not only, now watch this. Paul doesn't say, stop physically harming them. Stop your physical beatings. Because that's, that's not even on, on the grid for Paul. Like that's not even something that's even remotely close to being acceptable. He takes it farther and says, Stop your threatening. Don't even threaten to do harm. It's implicit within that, that obviously there's no physical harm involved between master and, and bondservant. That's off the table. There's, no, there's absolutely zero excuse for that. Zero reason for that, why that should be happening. And we know that because Paul goes so far as to say, don't even threaten your servants. That doesn't sound like the kind of slavery you and I think of when we think of modern day slavery. This abuse, this, this, this physical harm, this injury, right? This objectifying people. 
Paul's saying, don't even threaten them. Treat them as you would the Lord, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Now, here's where we go. Interesting. The relationship between master and bondservant here is equivalent to relationship between believer and God. Is God an oppressive, abusive master that beats his people? So the very fact that Paul is equating the master and bondservant relationship to the relationship that a Christian has with their father eliminates any idea that this kind of biblical servitude or slavery is abusive, kidnapping, race-based, uh, physical harming, objectifying, none of that. And you can take me to Exodus, you can take me to Leviticus, you can take me to all the passages. Again, I'm going to do an exhaustive teaching on biblical slavery. Not today, but I would like to do it either this week or next week. Because I'm just tired of people misquoting scripture and then thinking they have leverage morally above believers. And then Christians aren't equipped to answer that. And they're like, oh my gosh, God is for slavery. It's like, oh my gosh, you don't know how to read the Bible. So know this, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Okay. And there is no partiality with him. In other words, watch this. God is not going to treat employers, masters differently than he's going to treat bond servants or, or, or uh, employees. Okay, so here's what you need to understand. God is not a respecter of persons. God does not respect or consider authority in, in his judgment. When, when he judges people at the end of their lives, he's not considering, well, how much authority did you have on earth? What kind of, what kind of position did you have in the world? How high were you socially? What was your social status? Those are not considerations. God uses the same standard of judgment to judge Bondservant, employee, master, employer, wife, husband, child, parent, the standard's the same. And then you bring that into the bondservant-master relationship. And Paul is saying, masters, servants, the way you treat each other in that relationship is going to be the same. You're treating each other as you would Christ. You're respecting and revering each other as Christ. There's no way to get around that. There's no room, and if you want to go Old Covenant, that's fine. Old Testament, we can deal with that another time. But here in the New Testament, here in the New Covenant, the idea of biblical bond servitude or slavery is nothing like we think of. It's nothing like it. Um, no threatening, treating each other like Christ, revering, respecting with fear and trembling, a sincere heart. By the way, the command for bond servants is repeated in a, in a summarized version for the masters in verse 9. Masters do the same to them. He doesn't have to repeat himself. He doesn't go down the line. Masters, with fear and trembling and a sincere heart, love them as you would Christ. Everything said in verse 5 through 8 for the servant applies to the master. Okay, there's no way to get around it. So, I know people are going to push back and have questions and misdefined terms and want to get out of this. And I expect it. I expect it. I'm not even looking at the comments. I just know it. I just know it. So, here's what we're going to do. I'm not taking questions. 
necessarily right now, about biblical slavery, servitude, masters, bond servants. Not taking questions about that, but I will take questions that are having to do with the Christian faith and walking out this thing called Christianity and walking with Jesus and questions that are more that are less off this topic because this can get exhausting to talk about. And I'm going to do an exhaustive teaching on this soon. Like I promise, I've been saying that for a long time. It's come to the point where I'm frankly done seeing these comments and people think they got the, they pull the gotcha with the slavery card and they're like, ha, morally superior, Christians suck. It's like, no, no, no. So if you have questions, about the Christian faith, the Bible, Jesus, stuff like that, that is not around the topic of bond servants and masters, again, for the sake of um, saving that for another day. We're going to wait. You can ask your questions in the question box. Interesting. Lightning Q&A. Randomly select a question. You can switch to another. That's an interesting thing i'm driving and listening love y'all sweet glad you're here all right how to go out of comfort zone even though i know being in comfort zone is no good for me uh your name is jj jj my question is this i'm not disagreeing with you i'm just asking a clarifying question why is it that being in a comfort zone is not good for you what is negative about being in, a, in your comfort zone? What is negative about being in a comfort zone? Why don't you, uh, why is that something you want to avoid? Because if I can understand how you're defining comfort zone, everyone's going to define that a little differently and think of something else. If I can get into your head, I can answer it helpfully. All caps, do you think there's life on another planet or aliens exist? I was going to be snarky and say yes. Not in the way you think. I believe technically we're aliens and foreigners to this world. <laughs> like we, our citizenship is with the kingdom of God in heaven. Technically we're foreigners here. I don't believe there's life on other planets now. For a number of reasons. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think which one to start with because each of these, I'll, I'll say this, okay, I'll say this. I think foreign entities, demons, angels, that which is not of this material, physical reality, those, those kind of spiritual beings technically are aliens, right? <sighs> technically, those, looking at Christina's, um, comment um so technically those are aliens we're aliens so yeah aliens exist there you go i think being in comfort zone means i can't grow and get something better okay career wise so you're thinking that's why i asked the question career wise so you're thinking now let me go back and read your question you're saying how do i go out of my comfort zone referring to the, your career even though i know being in my comfort zone is no good for me okay if the question is, how do I go out of my comfort zone? 
in terms of your career? Spiritually, okay. Spiritually too. Um, here's what I will say. I'm like all over the place this morning. I didn't get any sleep. I will say this, okay? God, when you follow God, when you actually like put your faith and trust in him and let him lead you, you will find God naturally leading you out of your comfort zone. I think for me to step out of my comfort zone, I need to... See, I can't think today. I need to be faced with um, uh, an opportunity to change. And I think that's exactly what Scripture is. When you read the Bible, you're faced with uh, God's ideal for your life. And then you compare that with your current life and you go, hmm, I see opportunity to change. Now I can choose to not change and disregard the scripture I read today and disregard the truth that I, that I internalized, or I can make an application and say, I'm going to do something about this. And when you do, when you, when you come across an opportunity to change and become more like Jesus and demonstrate patience or stop watching that show or stop going to those places or or to actually go to church this Sunday, you're stepping out of your comfort zone, right? So I think that's the very simple answer is just read the scriptures, be willing to change, and God will lead you out of your comfort zone. Now, if you're talking about how do I become willing to change, okay? I want to be willing to step out of my comfort zone. I, I think that comes through prayer. I think that comes through intentional prayer and asking God to help you step out. And I know those aren't the, those are like the overly simplistic answers that you don't want. Um, I know you don't want those answers, but the simple truth is left to my own devices. Like I can give myself reason to never change. I can get to the place, like currently right now, I can be okay uh, with who I am and see no reason to grow. I can live in delusion and say, as a person, I am perfect. I have no need to grow and get better and become more loving or more patient or, or more tolerant or more accepting. I am great. I can give myself reason to stay in my comfort zone. What I think God does is he gives you reason to step out through his word. If you're not faced with conflicting ideas and conflicting views that oppose your own, obviously, then you won't really find the opportunity to change as long as you live in the echo chambers that you do. That's why I watch tons of videos that, um, and listen to podcasts that are in opposition to my worldview because I want to learn how people see things and learn how people see the world, and also um, be presented with an opportunity to change my views on certain things. Um, 
because I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to step out. But I think that could be like a whole sermon in and of itself, how to step out of your comfort zone. That's a difficult one to answer because there are so many factors within that that are going to be relative to the person. Um, so, all caps. Why do you think we are going through harder stages in life? Now, pandemics, end of times, question mark? Y'all, I'm not here today. I'm tired. Some people are going to say the pandemic is the sign of the end times. That's fine. They could be right. I take the stance that the pandemic is just another thing. Um, it's not really that much different than what we've seen throughout human history. In fact, I'll tell you, throughout human history, there have been even greater signs of the end times. And even then, apparently, they weren't as close as we are. They saw, they've seen worse things. Look at human history. Um, there have been some wicked acts of absolute darkness and destruction and evil. And I'm talking like crazy um, signs, right? The pandemic doesn't really, it really pales in comparison with what we've seen. There's been, all I'm, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm not bad, I'm not saying people aren't dying, I'm saying there have been worse things. That's the very simple answer I'm going to give, is there have been worse things than the pandemic. Not belittling it, not minimizing it, just putting it into proper perspective. This is not the worst thing humanity's ever experienced. So like Christina says, it's purely speculation. No one will know, um the time when Christ comes. I think the way Jesus says in Matthew 23 is, here's how you know the end times are here. He says it will be like the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, people were drinking and feasting and getting married and celebrating. In other words, they were doing life as usual, just normal everyday life. And then the flood came. No, no sign except Noah, the preacher of righteousness, except the giant ark. There you go. There's your sign. But besides that, there was no indication the flood was about to happen. It just happened. Or Matthew 24. Thank you, angel. So as believers, if Jesus likens the end times to the days of Noah, and he tells us in what ways the two are comparable, then we can for sure say, well, when it comes to Jesus's second coming, there, there won't be any definitive way to recognize that he's close. In fact, it's going to be when we least expect it, when the world least expects it, which seems to be in a, in a um, condition of uh, comfort and safety and somewhat peace. I don't know. I'm just saying that when the flood came, there was, everyone was doing life as normal. It doesn't mean life wasn't hard and there wasn't troubles and it was perfect. It just means there was no sign this was about to happen. And um, I think that'll be the same for us when Jesus comes. It'll be when you least expect it. Everyone, there's, there's one view that says when life reaches 
that point, when, when, when the world reaches that pinnacle of trouble and, and turmoil and death, and it's just utter chaos and darkness, that's the point. That's the point at which Jesus is going to come. And that, how you come to that conclusion is based on your reading of Revelation. I don't read Revelation the way most people do. Um, but I will say this. Jesus doesn't seem to indicate his second coming will be when the world is at its uh, worst. Seems like it'll be when the world is just normal. When no one would have seen it coming. Uh, and that could be today, tomorrow. I could die today or tomorrow. We might not make it to the second coming of Jesus. The point isn't when is he coming. The point is what are you doing? And that's going to affect whether you die tomorrow or he comes tomorrow, right? You're going to stand before God. Um, so I think end times conversation gets really um, convoluted with these wrong terms and these wrong ideas assumptions about what the end of the world's going to look like and it's just confusing the crap out of christians and the church you can tell i'm just not having it this morning i'm tired that's what happens um here's what we're going to do okay in about 12 minutes we're going to jump on a zoom call so set your alarms set a timer um put your um oven timer on call your mom and say in 12 minutes remind me to jump on a zoom call and we're going to pray with one another we're going to talk through things and and talk about what we're learning in the scripture so if you want fellowship and community i'm telling you this is the place if you want the discord link to our discord community um, as well as our zoom link it's in the, my tiktok bio as well as in the youtube description below if you're watching on youtube um, so just click the link for the Zoom in about 11 minutes now. The password is Jesus. I don't know how people will forget to come in 10 minutes. We'll see who shows up. But uh, in the meantime, visit AboveReproachMinistry.com for all of your needs in life. You'll find our podcast, YouTube channel, our free online Bible study skills courses that you can take. Um, again, free. You can... Uh, find our free devotional studies every week. Uh, I release a free Bible study workshop, a Bible study devotional, and a skills course that you can take online. Um, I release one of those every week. So, And then you can find my book online on my website. But if you want to help me continue to create all this free content so that anyone across the planet can experience these free Bible study skills courses and take them and, and uh, read the Bible study devotionals and, and watch the workshops and these trainings. If you want to keep um, this going and help me and my family, because I have a wife and two kids, if you want to support us, um, there are ways to give financially if you've benefited from this content. Let's go to abovereproachministry.com. The link is in my TikTok bio. Uh, go to my website and then you'll find different ways to give. You can give one time through Cash App or PayPal or Venmo. You can give on a monthly basis through Patreon. And you can get access to all these exclusive benefits like uh, discounts on church merch, a free PDF or a digital copy of my book, a free copy of my actual book, um, hard copy, and uh, all that is on my website. Thank you guys for, for those of you that do support this ministry and 
This is my full-time job to care for my wife and two kids. So you guys are helping us not just to pay for bills and have money for groceries and have food, but you make this content possible because this costs time and, and research and energy and sleepless nights and all this stuff. So thank you, thank you, thank you for those that give and make this possible. And I'll see you in about 10 minutes on the Zoom call. 10 minutes, all right? Be there. Don't miss it. Bye, guys.